Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with yesterday's overwhelming victory for abortion rights in Kansas, which signaled a robust national majority against the recent Supreme Court decision and Republican legislators in Washington and in state legislatures. Joining us is Tiffany Muller, the president of N Citizens United, Let America Vote, who became the first openly gay public official in Kansas in 2004 as a member of the Topeka City Council, where she led efforts to expand anti-discrimination protections. She has also served as the Chief of Staff on Capitol Hill and was a Deputy Political Director at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, where she worked closely with top U.S. Senate races in the country. We will discuss the danger posed to American democracy by the many stop-the-steal election deniers elected to run in key offices in November in critical swing states like Arizona and Michigan. Then we'll explore further the electoral landscape roiling from the Supreme Court's overturning of Rowan Casey with results from Kansas indicating that the American majority is not so much pro-choice as they are in favor of settled law, which the right-wing radicals on the court upended. Joining us is Carol Sanger, a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. Her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. Then finally, we will speak with Jonathan Weiler, a professor in global studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics, and his latest book is Prius or Pickup, How the Answers to Four Simple Questions Explain America's Great Divide. We will discuss his article at Jonathan's newsletter at jonathanweiler at substack.com. We are the majority. Nothing's the matter with Kansas. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Tiffany Muller, who's the president of N Citizens United, Let America Vote, who became the first openly gay public official in Kansas in 2004 as a member of the Topeka City Council, where she led efforts to expand anti-discrimination protections. She has also served as a chief of staff on Capitol Hill and was a deputy political director at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, where she worked closely with top U.S. Senate races in the country. Welcome to Background Briefing. Tiffany Muller. Thanks so much for having me, and it's great to be with you today. Well, thanks for joining us, Tiffany. And the editorial in the Kansas City Star today is headlined, Kansas voters spoke loudly on abortion, trust women, now politicians must listen. So I'm not sure that politicians or Republican politicians are necessarily going to listen, but do you think they're alarmed? They should be. If they're not, they absolutely should be. I mean, we saw the defeat of the ballot measure to take away a woman's uh, right to choose 
go down in defeat by a very, very wide margin. I think right now it's 58 to 41 in a traditionally red state and one that has been at the heart of the abortion debate and battles throughout the past 30 years. And what we saw was Kansas voters soundly rejecting the extremist proposal to take away a woman's right to choose and to make their own health care decisions. So uh, Republicans should be concerned. I mean, they saw what we saw last night was increased turnout across the board. We saw Republican voters joining with Democrat and independent voters to resoundly reject this amendment. And I think that the anger and concern that people have about their freedoms and their liberties being taken away are going to help uh, be a motivating factor in November. And it was unusual. Maybe I'm missing something here, but I don't remember any church actively spending money on a referendum like the Catholic Church in Kansas did. That is surprising. Have you heard any, have you seen this before? Because they basically bankrolled the yes proposition, which, by the way, uh, there was some deceptive advertising from a former Republican congressman urging people to vote, saying that if you vote yes, you're voting for choice. Uh, Yes. And there were even last minute uh, deceptive practices, disinformation tactics um, being sent out, robotext being sent out saying, uh, if you want to protect a woman's right to choose, vote yes. Um, So there was deceptive disinformation going on up to the very last minute. But I think it shows the power of the organizing that was happening on the ground, that even with the Catholic Church bankrolling, the anti-abortion efforts, even with these deceptive practices, that the pro-choice supporters were able to lodge such such an impressive victory. And Ian, the only other time I can remember a religious organization, a church being this actively involved in a ballot measure, and by no means do I know all of them, but the one that comes to mind is the Prop 8 campaign in California around marriage equality, what that was primarily bankrolled by the LDS church uh, in, I think that was what, 2008. So we have seen this before, but it is very rare. But, you know, the other thing that we've seen is a is a lot of dark money across the country that has worked over the past decades to really get us to this point. Uh, so you've had $600 million spent to radicalize the Supreme Court including $52 million just to stack the court with Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett to give them the majority that they needed to overturn Roe. Um, And then another $500 million spent advocating against abortion. That's $1.1 billion spent by extremist right-wing partisan groups uh, to try to push these anti-choice efforts. And again, I'm speaking with Tiffany Muller, who's president of N Citizens United, Let America Vote, who became the first openly gay public official in Kansas in 2004 as a member of the Topeka City Council, where she led efforts to expand anti-discrimination protections. She's also served as the chief of staff on Capitol Hill and was a deputy political director at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, where she worked closely with the top U.S. Senate races in the country. So... You know, the dark money 
is a result of Citizens United, right? So that's a, that's exactly right. That's exactly and, right. And so now we're talking about both ending Citizens United and let America vote. And in that regard, uh, there were some pretty alarming results from yesterday's primaries in Arizona and in other states where candidates running for Secretary of State's offices are part of Trump's Stop the Steal cadre. In fact, the most alarming of all is in Arizona with Mark Fincham, who's a QAnon devotee, and he actually was at the insurrection on January the 6th, and he's now the Republican nominee for Secretary of State. So clearly the Republicans are targeting these offices and even lower down the chain in terms of state and local canvassing boards. So what are the plans here to stop this? Because the last thing you want to do is discourage people from voting, figuring that the deck is stacked against them. But the truth of the matter is the Republicans are stacking the deck, the deck against Democrats. Yeah, you're exactly right, Ian. It, this is a really, this is a really serious, pivotal moment for our country. I mean, for the first time in our history, we didn't have a peaceful transfer of power. We have seen voting rights uh, be under attack for over the past year and or over the past two years including over 500 proposals across the country in 2021 and 2022 that would have rolled back voting rights. Um, Over 35 of those became law in states across the country. We saw gerrymandering that um, some of the most racially partisanized gerrymandering we've ever seen to further dilute the brown and black voting power in this country. Um, And a Supreme Court, a radicalized Supreme Court that is attacking our freedoms and undermining our democracy. And then on top of all of that, to your point, you have over 120, it's actually 122 Republican nominees running for election right now that deny the 2020 election results and that push the big lie and the conspiracy theories around the big lie. And you talked about uh, Mark Fincham in Arizona, who won the Republican nomination for Secretary of State in Arizona last night. There's Christina Caramo in Michigan, who's also running for Secretary of State. Jim Marchant in Nevada. Uh, Doug Mastriano, who's running for Pennsylvania governor, uh, who was at the Capitol on January 6th. These are conspiracy theorists who pose a clear and dangerous threat to our democracy, who, if they were elected, rather than doing their job to ensure that we have free and fair and accurate elections, would literally attempt to upend our free and fair elections. And that's why here at In Citizens United and Let America Vote, we've launched our first ever Democracy Defender Program where we're really prioritizing attorneys general and secretary of state races across the country, because we know that this is the firewall in our democracy, that whoever is elected in 2022 is going to be who counts the votes and certifies the votes in 2024. And we cannot allow these folks who are lying about our elections, pushing all these crazy conspiracy theories uh, to be in and to hold these offices of power. So it wasn't just candidates for Secretary of State that are election deniers. We mentioned Mark Fincham and the other (laughs) QAnon 
follower in um, Michigan. But you've got on top of that in, in Michigan, you had Tudor Dixon winning the nomination for governor. She's an election denier. She didn't believe that Biden won Michigan in 2020. You've got Blake Masters running for the Senate in Arizona, who's totally cynical. He's, he's backed by Trump and paid for by his, uh, his friend, uh, Peter Thiel. He, of course, knows better, but he's pushing the Trump line, as, as is J.D. Vance, who's also bankrolled by the tech billionaire Peter Thiel. And in Missouri, Eric Schmidt, who won, he's also a, an election denier, and he backed Texas's uh, lawsuit seeking to overturn the 2020 election results in four key states that Trump had lost. So it's not just at that level, right? They're, they're, they're across the board, these election deniers. That's right. They're up and down the ballot and they are in they are running for offices that hold real power in the outcome of these decisions. I mean, imagine if we had had a secretary of state in Michigan, uh, along with a governor in Michigan, um, who both rather than Jocelyn Benson and Gretchen Whitmer, who defended our democracy and Dana Nessel as well, the attorney general there, who defended our democracy, protected it in court, made sure that uh, there wasn't fake electors presented to the U.S. Senate. Imagine if there had been a secretary of state and a governor who were actively trying to overturn the election. And that's the decision and the moment that we are faced with. And in the U.S. Senate, um, you know, we saw that there were there were some folks who actively believe these conspiracy theories and others who went along because they thought it was politically advantageous to them. And I think uh, to your point about some of the cynicism, that's exactly what we're seeing in this election right now. Some people think that by pushing the big lie, it will help them politically. Others truly believe that there was fraud, despite all the overwhelming evidence that there wasn't. And but either way, both of those can those types of candidates are undermining our democracy and undermining voters' faith and trust in our elections and in our democracy. You know, and I think we can go back to last night in Kansas and see though that people are also really tired of these right-wing extremists taking away our freedoms, taking away our liberties, and instead want to stand up and stand together to make sure that we are defending uh, those freedoms and liberties, everything from the right to choose around reproductive rights to voting rights, to getting money out of politics, to LGBTQ rights, um, man, to even what books you get to read, right? Because uh, the Republicans are on a book banning tour as well. Um, so I, this, this moment that we are in couldn't be more urgent. So, Tiffany, in the last couple of minutes then, given your work as Deputy Political Director at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, what the lesson from Kansas was, in part, if not in whole, was turnout, turnout, turnout. You know, they, women and, and others showed up in huge numbers, surprised the Republicans who were trying to sneak it through, thinking it, you know, nobody would be paying attention. There's the lesson for the November elections. And in the case of the Democrats, if they picked up a few more Senate seats, they wouldn't be at the mercy of Joe Manchin or Senator Sinema, who could still tank the new proposal to deal with global warming and 
fortify the Affordable Care Act and make prescription drugs cheaper, which is being heavily lobbied against by Big Pharma. So is that the lesson there, and is that going to resonate, and can somehow that become a national message? That it's the, the answer to the tyranny of the minority in this country is quite simple. Just get more people out to vote, in, particularly in these key races that you mentioned that you're focused on, which is Secretary of State races. Yeah, I think it is both turnout and persuasion. Uh, every successful race, and especially in a state as hard to win in as Kansas is, is always a combination of persuasion and turnout. And last night in Kansas, we saw massive turnout that was unexpected. We saw a great deal of registration, particularly among women, after the June 24th Dobbs decision came down. The electorate literally changed from June 24th to August 2nd. But on top of that, you also saw persuasion. I'm seeing estimates that as many as 20% of Republican voters voted no. So they voted to protect uh, the right to choose. And that's really important because I think it continues to show that what Democrats are fighting for is what all of America wants. You know, all of America wants women to be able to make these choices with their doctors and not have radical right-wing extremists and politicians and a radicalized Supreme Court making decisions about our bodies. You know, I think it's now 70% of Americans support marriage equality, but we know that the radical Supreme Court and um, some right-wing extremists are coming after that. Somewhere around 90% of America supports uh, gun background checks, supports birth control, but we just had 195 House Republicans vote against codifying the right to birth control. So look, the American people are with us. We have to make sure that they understand the choice that they are facing in November. And we have to do both motivate our base uh, to get out the vote, and we have to persuade the independents and the common sense moderate Republicans that, that are still out there to vote with us, because this really is about saving the future of our country. And so for everyone listening, we need you to be in this fight with us. We need you to make a plan to vote. We need you to get five of your friends or family members to make a plan to vote, um, because this is not the time that any of us can afford to sit on the sidelines. Well, Tiffany Muller, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Tiffany Muller, who's the president of End Citizens United, Let America Vote, who became the first openly gay public official in Kansas in 2004 as a member of the Topeka City Council, where she led efforts to expand anti-discrimination protection. She's also served as a chief of staff on Capitol Hill and was a deputy political director at the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, where she worked closely with the top U.S. Senate races in the country. We're going to take a brief station break and back with a further explanation of the electoral landscape roiling from the Supreme Court overturning of Rowan Casey with results from Kansas indicating that the American majority is not so much pro-choice as they are in favor of settled law, which the right-wing radicals on the court upended. The girls in New York City, they all march for women's lib. Better homes and gardens shows a modern way to live and the pill may change the world tomorrow but meanwhile today here in Topeka the rain is upon 
dog is barking and the floor needs a scrubbing. One of them is toddling and one is crawling and one's on the way. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carol Sanger. Thank you. So, Carol, what do you make of the vote in Kansas? It's Everybody seems very surprised in the press at such a robust rejection of the anti-abortion legislatures and some rather sort of dirty tricks are played as well in terms of texting, etc., trying to confuse voters. But it's a, you know, mm-hmm. it's a 60-40 split. It probably reflects an, a nationwide statistic too, I think. it's you know, But it seems to me that we're in a situation now where it's not a case of being anti-abortion or pro-abortion. It's it, it looks as if the majority of Americans are pro-Roe v. Wade. They they just want the settled law back. Is that is that a way to look at it? Uh, yes, it is. And I think one of the things about the Dobbs case was it, it was how unsettling it was, and that was part of the shock. I mean, it can't have come to a shock since, as, as a total shock, because we already had had the leak from some somebody's chambers, so we knew what the decision was going to be. But it was still very shocking to realize that there was no backup support, that nobody had your back if a woman faced an unwanted pregnancy, and so it was the reality of it. Um, because this has been being threatened since the day Roe was announced. So it's been like a 49-year slow slow and steady and very patient attack on reducing, reducing the number of abortions in the United States, hopefully to zero. And what they came very close to with Dobbs it was a zero, at least in those states who wanted it to be that way, but not quite. I don't want to take our attention off Kansas, but I did want to mention to you the um, the latest doings in Idaho, which the Attorney General and the Justice Department sued, sued yesterday because they did try to take abortion down to zero and had passed their post-jobs rule, which said that there could be, there were no exceptions to save the mothers to protect a woman's health. And um, do you mind me going in that direction for a moment? Well, with Idaho, because, because I think two big things happened yesterday. One was the suit against Idaho and the other was the people, the people of Kansas speaking, speaking up and, they there were some quips online about how the slogan should have been, "Remember, your husband isn't in the voting booth with you." But I've I've long thought that husbands and wives we know that husbands and wives generally agree on abortion decisions, and that although husbands get the attack and reputation of not wanting their wives to have abortions, it's generally not true. There's usually unanimity between the the couple. So. 
it's it's a family decision and it's usually made that way. So so I think men and women voted for it, um, voted to turn down the amendment, which would have taken away the protection that the Kansas Supreme Court had already laid out for legal abortion. You just touched on something earlier there when you talked about the leaked draft uh, from yeah. the Supreme Court. There is some more reporting on that that indicates that the leak very likely came from Clarence Thomas or Samuel Alito or their clerks mm-hmm. because what was happening was that the Chief Justice Roberts was working on Brett Kavanaugh to mm-hmm. keep keep Roe in place and the the arch conservatives who authored the Dobbs opinion leaked it in order to basically scuttle uh, Roberts' attempts to sway Kavanaugh. I see. I don't hmm. know whether that's you can take that to the bank, but that's the latest reporting on it. That <laughs> I heard, you know. Well, that's not surprising. Like, nobody could see much gain for the pro-choice side to have leaked it. You know, but it's it's a sort of well, one one thing is that if what you say is is so, then it just shows such disrespect for the um, for the unwritten rules of the court and the consideration they're supposed to give one another's opinions. There there are words outweighs how you trade opinions around, but the justices trade opinions, and leaking leaking for manipulative reasons is not one of them. So. That's another thing we might take from this, if that's the case. But I I do think that the vote in Kansas, I mean, it has benefactors, no, beneficiaries, which are the other states around Kansas, because Kansas is a little bit landlocked in terms of being a legal state for, so so if it had taken away, if its legislature eventually knocked out legal abortion, it would be really difficult for five or six states that surround Kansas. So that's another sort of regional courtesy it was doing to its its neighbors. Um, but I'm really not so surprised about the decision. I wrote a piece, I think, two and a half years ago called Watch What You Wish For, Republicans, which is people who are happy to have an abortion card in their back pocket. They they want in case they need it. And the, and the need for abortion isn't only hasn't only shown to be um, unwanted pregnancies. There are lots of people doing in vitro fertilization and artificial you know reproductive technologies, which require the creation of embryos. And suddenly, the creation of embryos puts anyone who's doing that online with possibly not using an embryo and therefore being subject to having committed an abortion as well. So I think that the, the we've given an expanded meaning to reproduction and people realize it's better to have control over reproductive uh, technologies yourself than to have the government announce to you what is going to be um, a, a, an abortion and you know, presumably some form of of murder. So that's that's another piece of this is that in the last few years people have come to identify more with reproduction in a 
in a positive way, and that it's not just abortion, it also is the creation of um, pregnancies. And again, I'm speaking with Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. So I was just reading the editorial in the, today's Kansas City Star, and it's, it basically celebrates uh, the women of Kansas and uh, how out of touch the legislature is in Kansas. And that's pretty much true across the country. The Republicans control more and more of these state legislatures. And you've seen from the election results in a lot of these states, in particular Arizona, how some really dangerous people, anti-democratic radicals, um, one of whom is he'll be the running for secretary of state in Arizona. Fincham is, right, is a complete right. nutcase. He's a QAnon. He went to, he was a part of the insurrection on the Capitol, etc. So this is a, anyway, it's a welcome um, situation in, in uh, Kansas. But the thing that the, that the editorial pointed out without naming names was the role of the Catholic Church who funded this anti-abortion crusade um, which used a lot of dishonest tricks. A former congressman sent out tweets suggesting that if you voted yes, you're voting for choice, which was the opposite of, the, of what in mm-hmm. fact was happening. So let's talk a little bit about the role of the Catholic Church. They actually have, has this ever happened before in a political race where a church has literally put money into a campaign? That I can't answer, but we certainly know there's been a lot of participation in the politics um, during races, such as um, threatening or in some cases doing it. Biden, and I'm trying to think of the end, um, other Catholic politicians who were threatened with excommunication and not, and also not being able to take the sacraments. So that, and also telling that to the to the congregations that th- that's how serious a thing it was to vote for a pro-choice politician. It put your your membership, in a sense, um, online. On and so we, we know that there's been that lower level of, well, it's pretty high level, actually, if you go to, to a mass and, and are told uh, you're putting your soul at stake by your opinion on this. But what we know is that women of all religions um, get abortions when they think they need one. And so the the there's a there's an, a, a slogan that's going around and started in Texas I think trust Texas women and I saw it in this one as well trust women of Kansas and the idea is you know we trust women with raising children we trust women with everything actually um, and so why start this seems like a very strange place to start not trusting women to make a sensible decision when necessary. And so I I salute the uh, editorial that you were speaking about because it's putting, it's trusting women to know what they, what they want and what they need. I mean, abortion has certainly gotten the rap of being a, an idle decision, you know, something that it's part of, it's part of the, um, 
the narrative yeah. that it's lightly taken and so on. But it's well, not. But, and but women I know, Carol, but, that, but one of the reasons I think why it, it has that reputation is because the framing of the, the debate between pro-life and pro-choice yeah. Pro-choice suggests a sort of frivolity, or yeah. Yeah. you know, whether I wear, you know, green blouse or a red blouse, you know. Oh yeah, it, it includes sort of consumer choice. Mm-hmm. I have an abundance of choice, and I can choose anything I want, and so it it does. It makes it a trivial decision and one that you know that that is women are accused of making on a whim, but that's. Generally not so, in part because abortion has been so demonized in the country that I don't think anything anybody comes to the decision lightly and knows what kind of stigma can fall on their head if it's known that they've had an abortion or even thinking about an abortion. There are studies that, that show when women are getting pregnancy tests, like at Walmart, they generally drive one or two counties over so that they won't accidentally know the uh, the checkout person and who might be, you know, a classmate of their high school kid. And they want to keep all aspects of announcing pregnancy and terminating pregnancy private. Well, um, you need to be in Texas, for God's sake. You can, you have, <laughs> you know, your neighbor yeah. is, is empowered to inform on you and they get paid a bounty if they do. That's right, a nice $10,000. And you think about, are people actually going to see whether a woman is buying Tampax or, you know, what her what her pharmaceutical products are or whether she's getting um, pregnancy, you know, vitamins? And probably most people aren't, but it puts a little fear into you at the checkout counter, you know, as you're, as you're going through the store, realizing... Um, there's a case a few years ago of a father who sued Target for accusing his daughter of being pregnant, his, his teenage daughter, because they had monitored they had monitored her. She'd bought prenatal vitamins, and so they sent her a coupon for diapers. And her father went ballistic and made a big ruckus with Target, but it turned out that Target was right. I mean, <laughs> there are ways you can tell. Um, by what a person, you know, all those algorithms are for a purpose. Um, Just one other thing about the Kansas case I I wanted to say. This shows how important protections against voter suppression are because there was a heavy turnout in Kansas, and that was significant. They uh, They weren't counting on a heavy turnout. But there was one. And so this shows how important early voting can be and mail-in votes and all the other techniques designed to make voting easier for for the voter. Um, But they're exactly the sorts of things that that states that are worried, not in the past so much about abortion legislation, but but there's going to be some greater heads up with regard to that, I think, as they see that people are voting. One of the methods that people can use is referendum, like this one in Kansas. And that means everybody's vote matters. And so um, so I think that's another thing to put on the 
you know, the, the scouting list, what, what's going on with voting equality in these in the in the states that we're concerned about. So, just in closing, then, uh, Carol, what's this going to do about the Supreme Court? We have a tyranny of the minority here. You've got people like Alita who wrote this opinion, Dobbs, and also Clarence Thomas, who now is effectively, apparently, the Chief Justice. So they're arrogant, they're triumphal, they don't care. Yep. They actually love they love taunting the libs. I mean, they're, yep. they're a part of the trolling Republican Party. Its main focus is on owning the libs as opposed to taking care of the American people. So this is the sad truth. What can be done? I mean, obviously, the, this is the results of this referendum in Kansas are falling on deaf ears. They're not going to affect Alito. Alito actually, in his opinion, said that getting rid of Roe and Casey would would end divisions. Well, my God, the opposites happen. These people are on a different mm-hmm. planet. It's so what can mm-hmm. what can be done apart from the Democrats waking up the importance of of voting and taking the Supreme Court seriously. Very little can be done. And one of the aspects of Trump's appointments was that he was deliberately appointing people in their 50s. And I don't know, Coney may even be in her late 40s. But so that these are lifetime appointments that are meant to cement for the next 30 years. Our latest um, retirements have come at age 80. So to have these people on the court, what it means is that I mean, we're likely to have some other resignations coming up, but one, you don't know who. It could be a kind of Scalia heart attack that you're not, you know, planning on. And I would say fighting at the lower at the lower levels of district courts and appellate courts, those appointments are equally uh, well, not equally, but they're very, very important, important. And that would be a way of stopping some of the more uh, egregious cases like Dobbs from coming up to the court, but it is a a depressing moment for court analysis in that there isn't much to do. The court is now really not. The court is, appears to be a completely political branch, and that was what was supposed to distinguish it from the legislature and the executive was that it wasn't political. That's why they got lifetime terms so they could, you know, vote as they wanted without without fear of being removed from office. But it is frightening really when you think of for me, think of Thomas who's who says exactly what he thinks, although he's not usually joined by anybody else yet. And there there's a lot more damage to be done. And everybody my eye is on contraception. Um, Because Thomas has made that very clear and has written an opinion where he says contraception is just a piece of um, of race genocide and race discrimination. So there's he can play the long game here because he's secure. Well, Carol, I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Very good to speak with you. And again, I've been speaking with Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back discussing how we are the majority and nothing's the matter with Kansas. 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Jonathan Weiler, who's a professor of global studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics. And his latest book is Prius or Pickup, How the Answers to Four Simple Questions Explain America's Great Divide. And he has an article at Jonathan's newsletter at jonathanweiler at substack.com. We are the majority. Nothing's the matter with Kansas. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jonathan Weiler. Thanks for having me back, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Jonathan. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I I called Tom Frank this morning just to catch up on what's happening in Kansas. Um, uh-huh. and of course, um, it is a surprise to many that the women of Kansas in particular voted in such huge numbers against this uh, this attempt by the legislature to lock in uh, draconian abortion laws. And it's essentially seen as an encouraging sign, although I think across the country it's reflecting something that's pretty real, isn't it? There's a substantial majority of Americans who are against what the Supreme Court has done. Isn't that clear? And there's no question about that. And I, as I wrote in my piece, you know, over the years, there's certainly been some ambivalence in public opinion about abortion, depending on what kinds of restrictions you ask, to ask about, et cetera. But what there is overwhelming opposition to is the extreme version of anti-abortionism that has now just seized hold of the Republican Party. You know, they've made this pivot, Ian, that I know you're very well aware of, from 50, a 50-year campaign to overturn Roe v. Wade. And then as soon as it happened, oh, it's no big deal. People shouldn't make too much of it. But then, of course, we have things like a 10-year-old girl being raped in Ohio and having to go to Indiana to get an abortion. And it's very clear to people what the end of Roe v. Wade means. And what it does not mean are sensible restrictions on abortion, but an absolutely extreme version of the worst case scenario that anybody could have imagined. So let's just follow up on the notion that we are the majority and we have an anti-majoritarian Supreme Court and an electoral college and the red states have advantages over the blue states, and Democrats have to get about win about 8% more votes than Republicans just to, to break even. So given that situation, it does seem that the lesson from Kansas is turnout, right? It's uh, all about I, turnout. Yes, uh, absolutely. We, I mean, the Again, as you know, the Kansas legislators thought they were being sneaky. They put this ballot measure on an August primary night when they figured mostly Republicans would show up because most of the key races in the state are Republican races. And instead, because of the Dobbs decision, there was this massive mobilization. And it, you know, there's no question that people now understand, I think, very clearly, we are in a state of emergency. 
And that's, you know, clearly was the decisive factor last night. Well, I've noticed uh, some ads now that the Democrats are putting out sort of challenging listeners and voters, whose side are you on? Are you on the the side of American democracy or on the side of the traitors who would attack American democracy? And a whole bunch of traitors and liars got elected uh, or at least nominated in key states, particularly for Secretary of State's jobs. And we know that that is a, a major project of Trump's GOP, election suppression and Trump will be on stage uh, later this week in Dallas um, at CPAC with Orban, the Hungarian dictator whose uh, electoral authoritarianism has become the role model for Republican activists and Republican propagandists like Tucker Carlson on Fox. So that's the reality we're facing here, is it not? And I thought the ad, by the way, by the Democrats was a very powerful one. And it's also a very powerful ad by the AARP uh, urging uh, people to to support the vote in the Senate to make drug pricing competitive and lower the cost of prescription drugs and take on Big Pharma. But I thought to myself, well, <laughs> these are ads are appearing on MSNBC that's preaching to the choir. I hope they're getting out to a broader audience. So what's your sense of the broader electric, Jonathan? Uh, is there a... T- a mobilization underway against these crazies, these traitors, uh, and these liars. You know, the the, the very good um, political analyst, um, election forecaster, Rachel Bittekofer, who's, you know, big presence on Twitter, what she says all the time is when you're conducting a campaign, when you're trying to get people out to vote, There's two things you need to emphasize over and over again. You need to emphasize fear and you need to emphasize stakes, right? So that people understand that what is going to happen if the other side wins are all of these bad things. And those bad things are not just sort of trivialities. They cut to the core of what we want our country to be. One of the primary pieces of which is we, the voters, want to be able to choose who our representatives are. And so I think any ad that emphasizes Republicans' threat to those basic foundational principles without which any other progressive goals just cannot be achieved, I think that's just absolutely crucial. And I hope that as you said, Ian, that these ads aren't just on MSNBC, that they're on local radio, that that they're everywhere, and that they're also part of the organizing that campaigns do when they're meeting with voters and persuading them that staying home, you know, isn't really an option. And again, I'm speaking with Jonathan Weiler, who's a professor of global studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics, and his latest book is Prius or Pickup, How the Answers to Four Simple Questions Explain America's Great Divide. And he has an article at Jonathan's newsletter at jonathanweiler at substack.com. We are the majority. Nothing's the matter with Kansas. So... What is your sense, though, of, and I don't know that there's any real polling on this, of 
how many, I mean, we know the polling on how many people believe Trump's lie stopped the steal. And it's something like 80% of Republicans believe it. And a lot of the people that just got elected to run for secretary of state and governors in Arizona and, and uh, Michigan and other states uh, last night are stop the steal people. And that's a frightening prospect, uh, particularly with this guy Fincham, who's a QAnon nutcase along with, he actually was at the uh, January the 6th insurrection. So, and, and if he gets elected, then it's really serious uh, in terms of an important swing state like Arizona. But in general, I don't have a sense of how many people in this country are like Fincham and are believing like the 80% of the Republicans in Stop the Steal, which would indicate that we're in post-truth America and we're in real trouble when you have people believing crazy stuff. You know, Ian, I think this this question speaks to you know, the heart of the piece that I wrote today, which is I think it's really important for us both to take absolutely seriously the nature of the threat and also remind ourselves that that 80% that you're describing is of something like 30 to 35% of the population that identifies as Republicans. So we're talking about, and there are some independents who believe in, in Stop the Steal and still a few Democrats, but overall, a very large majority of Americans does not believe that. And so I think it is important to remind ourselves of that, but it's also equally important not to be complacent about that. So for example, in states like Arizona, you know, it's there are there is a greater percentage of people who believe the big lie. It's still not nearly a majority, but insofar as the Republicans are one of our two major parties and they are enthralled to Trumpism in much of the country, uh, we are going to get lots of candidates, you know, major party candidates running for key offices like Secretary of State who believe this stuff. And so it's a, it's, it is both true that they are not a majority. It's also true, and I think this is where the fear and the stakes come in, you need to convince people not just that the big lie is false, but that that's the critical issue that you need to vote on, even if on other issues you're more sympathetic to Republicans. And that's where things get more complicated, because just looking at, at people's positions on individual issues doesn't add up to, therefore, they're going to vote for X or Y. You've got to give them a compelling argument that the issues you care about are the most important issues to them, and then motivate them to vote on that basis. Well, clearly, you know, we learned from Hillary Clinton, deplorable statement, that it's not good politics to call people sort of stupid and deplorable and ignorant, etc. Yeah, so, not, not if you're trying to win their votes. No. <laughs> Given <laughs> that, what would the approach be? And I mean, isn't the the reality, as far as I can tell, is that it's a, just a divide and conquer strategy on the part of plutocrats like the Koch brothers and others who finance so much of this Republican dogma and also the Supreme Court through dark money. They got these this majority, this 63 majority yeah. on the court. Um, so we can see what they're up to. 
Yeah. Uh, they, they want people, working people divided against each other over abortion and guns and whatever so that they don't have time to think about what they have in common, both racially and economically. Isn't that really, I mean, I know it sounds like, a, I sound like a Marxist, but uh, those are the facts. No, no, no. But I mean, I think that's a it's an entirely reasonable way to think about it. What I would say is that, you know, there's this there's this what I think has been a kind of false debate. I mean, it's a real debate, but it's there's a false premise in a lot of Democratic circles that you either have to go the persuasion route or you have to go the turnout route. And those are seen as mutually exclusive, right? Because the implication of persuasion is you're trying to be more modern, play to the middle. And if you do so, you might alienate especially younger, more progressive voters who won't be as excited by your message. But I think the reality is that you clearly have to do both. You do have to mobilize for in the way that, for example, happened in Kansas for last night's um, constitutional amendment. And I think there are voters to get out there um, if they can be if they can be reached and again convinced that the stakes of not voting are are, are as high as we're as we're saying. And I think there is also it's not a big number of people, but there is a swingy few percent who are genuinely in the middle who go back and forth between Democrats and Republicans. And I think you do need to try to persuade them also. And, and as you said, you don't persuade them by telling them they're idiots. Um, but I think you can persuade them or try to persuade them by telling them that their own leaders really are contemptuous of them and don't have their best interests in heart and are using them for their own purposes. That has its own interesting complicated complications that people don't like to feel like they're suckers. Um, but I think there's a way to talk to people about their interests and what they care about in a way that isn't just insulting to them. So I think you need to do both. Well, that's definitely the case with the candidates that the billionaire tech libertarian Peter Thiel is buying two Senate seats or trying to with Blake Masters in Arizona, who just won his primary, and of course, J.D. Vance in Ohio. They're completely cynical. <laughs> they are literally know that they're manipulating the rubes, and they don't believe a damn thing that's coming out of their own mouths. And neither does Peter Thiel, but they just, uh, you know, want to use the rubes to get power. It's so cynical. But it's a lesson, though, Jonathan, here to stop Fincham in Arizona, which would be a catastrophe, and these other crackpots that Trump's encouraged who clearly they're targeting the Secretary of State's office. They're also targeting lower down, the camp, you know, state and local canvassing boards as well with Stop the Steal election deniers. So that that's the campaign that's staring us in the face. What's the answer here apart from a massive turnout? Because it's a race against voter suppression. I just don't know whether the Democratic Party has got its hands around this and you don't want to discourage people by saying, you know, your vote's going to be cancelled by these crackpots. But on the other hand, is there a practical message out there that says we're going to stop this? They got, they're not going to get away with it? I mean, I, I think that, you know, as a lot of people after the 2020 election sort of had a fantasy, can't every state 
have a Stacey Abrams, right? The, what she did to organize, register, mobilize voters in Georgia to such incredible effect in 2020. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to help her win the governorship this year. But I think an answer to your question, Ian, is that we just we do need that kind of machinery in every state. But I think this is really critical. You know, right after the Supreme Court ruled in Dobbs and, and got rid of a constitutional right to abortion, I heard one major organizational progressive person say the campaign for November starts now. And I thought to myself, well, that's no good because on the Republican side, the campaign for November and every November started 20 and 30 years ago. They have been in a constant state of mobilization for decades. And crucially, to a point you made a minute ago, Ian, they haven't just been focused on federal races. They've been focused on school boards. They've been focused on secretaries of state. They've been focused on state legislatures. They've run circles around Democrats in North Carolina, where I live, for example, at that state and local level. So I think that kind of mobilization, it can't just be episodic. It has to be a constant, unrelenting battle to match what the other side, what the other side is doing. Well, Jonathan, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Anytime, Ian. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Jonathan Weiler, who's a professor of global studies at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author of Authoritarianism and Polarization in American Politics, and his latest book is Prius or Pickup, How the Answers to Four Simple Questions Explain America's Great Divide. And he has an article at Jonathan's newsletter at jonathanweiler at substack.com. We are the majority. Nothing's the matter with Kansas. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Asher Price. If you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or to publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine
Welcome.